Let's continue then with our weaving of this tapestry that we are revealing, creating together even. Um, continue weaving together elements and themes and threads <coughs> that we've touched on before, introducing other threads, threads making connections, um, moving back and forth over the same areas and uh, bringing more out, uh, strengthening connections, etc. And if we look particularly, uh, following on from what we've been talking about, uh, the weave, the connection between erotic soul-making and uh, then our relationship to Dharma and to notions of awakening, visions of awakening and what the path is, and included in that, we said, must be also then the relationship to the vision, the view of uh, the world, which means the senses and sense experience, which also means Eros, uh, included in that itself, what is the relationship with Eros itself, and uh, that comes out of soul-making, if you like, that is necessary for soul-making, but also uh, that that is furthered through soul-making, and as an element of that, the view and relationship with sexuality. Uh, so, in, in, in kind of going over this again and, and bringing out certain elements and tying elements together, also want to a little bit uh, uh, look at some parallels or point out some parallels and connections with other traditions. <clears throat> in some cases, other Buddhist traditions, particularly uh, the Vajrayana traditions, Tantra, um, but also other, other Western traditions, etc., um, as a footnote to that point, actually, um, just to say, you, you know, the insight meditation tradition, um, as I consider my sort of root tradition, if you like, um, is an evolving animal. Uh, it's a, an evolving tradition. Um, it's actually relatively new. I mean, you could point to its birth in the 20th century, perhaps in... Uh, Burma and Thailand. Um, there's a case for that. Um, but as as a tradition, uh, a, it, there's a case for saying it's relatively new, and there's definitely a case uh, to be uh, to be made for for the fact that it's evolving. And looking back at the uh, at that short period of the insight meditation tradition since its sort of uh, emergence or inception, um, we can see very. Clearly, if you if you look at the Pali Canon text, for example, that the insight meditation tradition has thus far um, been quite selective about what it takes from the Theravadan tradition. Uh, it's probably more um, Catholic now in, in in what it takes, more wide in what it takes than it was, um, <coughs> let's say, thirty years ago when I started. Was it 30, more than 30 years ago? Um, uh, so part of that selectivity has to do with cultural congruence and what Westerners feel com- comfortable with or what Westerners can buy into or what it was thought that Westerners can buy into in terms of beliefs and cosmologies. Part of it has to do that. And some people are very uh, uh, trenchant in their view that this needs to be... Uh, upkept as a, as a selection process. But but not just uh, 
in terms of cultural criteria, cultural congruence criteria, but also, for example, um, a teaching like the jhanas uh, and, and samadhi is so, so central in, 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 the Buddha, in the Pali canon, so much so that the Pali canon in the text, uh, when they write it out, doesn't even bother to repeat uh, when the Buddha mentions it again, just as in, as in this sutta, as in this sutta before, and just references you back rather than repeat it all again. And so you can see only quite recently is there a sort of emergence of interest in the insight meditation tradition in the practice of jhana and recognizing that as really valid and valuable um, current uh, of practice, stream thread of practice. Or how little uh, emphasized, for example, <coughs> the contemplation of death is despite it being so central in the in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is regarded as the central text of the insight meditation tradition. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, we could say a lot about this, but how, if you like, narrow is the selection of the insight meditation tradition from the broader, broader Theravadan uh, tradition of texts and practices and teachings. In addition to that, the insight meditation tradition was born um, or came out of um, what had influenced or the teachings received by uh, the, the teachers in the insight meditation tradition, the initial teachers and then teachers since then. So it has mixed in with it a good dose of particularly Soto Zen, in the tradition of Shunrin Suzuki and, and others, um, and also, uh, and this again you can trace it back to a certain uh, time period, <coughs> uh, a, 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 a sprinkling of Dzogchen, uh, Tibetan uh, tantric teachings, but there again it's very selective what is taken from the Dzogchen uh, teachings or Mahamudra teachings, and they um, particularly only take, uh, uh, usually, or let's say usually what is taken is teachings about the nature of mind and the way it seems they uh, are congruent with teachings about resting in awareness and non-doing and so-called non-contrivance etc and the um, unfabricated nature of awareness and all this so the, te the teachings on the nature of mind form an element uh, a strand within tantric teachings in in, in uh, tantric buddhism and there are different levels of the teaching of nature of mind so what you see when you really go into this is only is sort of tantric teachings a little bit taken out of context for one thing and also at, at taken at different levels and brought in to mix with or find another language for certain insight meditation uh, teachings so just this is just good to, to know in case in case you don't um also as a precursor to what i'm going to uh, go into a little bit and what we've already touched on in terms of <coughs> corollaries and parallels with other traditions but also come back to this point later on that the insight meditation tradition is evolving it always has been evolving and uh, I, I would say that's a good thing <clears throat> so that was a little bit of a sort of um, preface but let's start with um, uh, a couple of lines from a tantric text, a Buddhist tantric text, called the Dakini Vajra Panjara. 
Uh, now, the, all these lovely uh, Sanskrit tantric titles, they, because of the nature of the Sanskrit language, they can be translated in in many ways. Um, we could say, uh, we could give a translation there, the dovecot of the diamond sky dancers, the dovecot of the diamond sky dancers, potentially, or... Um, the indestructible net of the Dakinis, or the the diamond ceremony of the Dakinis, many possible translations. I think, though I'm not sure, that this text, this tantric text, is a commentary on a a basic tantra called the Hevadra, Hevadra tantra. And I'm not sure about that. But it says, um, by passion or through passion, by passion the world arises. Through the removal or the giving up of passion, it, the world, is destroyed. Through the removal or the giving up of passion, the world is destroyed. And then the second line says, by thorough knowledge, uh, by by thorough knowing or by thorough gnosis, uh, that word, uh, gnosis again, that we used before, by thorough gnosis of the diamond passion, the mind becomes vajrasattva, a diamond being. By thorough knowing, gnosis, of the diamond passion, the mind becomes vajrasattva, meaning a diamond being. Now, uh, all these words that can be translated differently in the title, and even words like um, uh, diamond passion and diamond being, these have, in in the Vajrayana teachings, partly because of the Sanskrit language and partly because of the multidimensional nature of those teachings and multifaceted nature of the teachings, the very vocabulary itself has uh, this uh, polysemous nature. means multiple meanings, multiple levels of meaning. So what is a Vajrasattva? What is a diamond being? What is this diamond passion? And as we saw, the titles can be translated um, in different ways, kind of like like a jewel, like a diamond, reflecting uh, different facets, different, uh, giving different faces of of meaning, of hint, of inclination, of depth, of beauty. So just to say, Vajrasattva is is kind of like imaginal figures, which a Vajrasattva is, so to speak, in our language, is an imaginal figure. It's an imaginal date. It has an infinite depth of meaning uh, as an imaginal figure, a diamond being, um, as does diamond passion, indeed. But um, Vajrasattva is related. Uh, so one meaning of Vajrasattva in the Japanese uh, Shingon tradition is is just as a tantric practitioner, someone who is moving on that path, opening that path of um, the empty imaginal in our language. So tantric practitioner uh, is is what Vajrasattva means. Vajrasattva is also the high bodhisattva, the sort of um, Buddha, if you like, or an element of Samantabhadra is a primordial cosmic Buddha that has to do with action, not just meditation. And Vajrasattva is also connected with Sambhogakaya, which I think on uh, the last retreat, I think, uh, Poetry Perception, so we can actually translate, um, in terms of systems, we can translate Sambhogakaya as the mundus imaginalis, the world, the realm of the imaginal. So there's a lot, and there's much more in that word Vajrasattva. Um, is a tantric deity, really. Um, 
But let's explore this, this, uh, these couple of lines from the Dakini Vajra Panjara. And so the first one, um, by or through passion, raga, we touched on that word through, through uh, in the first talk, I think, uh, of this retreat, through passion the world arises. Through the removal or the giving up of passion, the world is destroyed. This, uh, I ho- hope you can, uh, already I don't need to say this, but I'll say it anyway, I hope that it's clear that that is referring to exactly our understanding of dependent arising, <coughs> dependent origination, through what we're calling clinging. By passion, let's say, by clinging, the world arises. Through clinging, in all its um, multiple richness and spectrum of depth of what clinging means, we've been through this before, I'm not going to repeat here, um, through clinging, the world arises. The world of fabrication, the world of things, of self, other, objects, space, time, etc. No clinging, no arising of the world. Through the removal, giving up of passion, of clinging, when we learn through skillful, through the art of meditation, um, meditation on emptiness, etc., um, to attenuate the clinging in the moment, really drain it out, so, so to speak, of the plumbing system, the inflation system of <coughs> of dependent origination through attenuating avidya, through attenuating the push-pull with experience, through the removal, giving up of passion, of clinging, the world is destroyed, meaning the appearance of a world is destroyed, is not fabricated. Yeah? So that first sentence of the Dakini Vajra Pandra uh, couplet there is... <coughs> is really just reiterating, in a sort of very succinct way, the whole of the Buddha's teaching of dependent origination, emptiness of the world of perception, fabrication, dependent arising, dependent fading. Uh, and out of that, the understanding of the emptiness. The second sentence there, um, by thorough knowledge, by gnosis of the diamond passion, uh, Vajraraga Prajnana uh, Parijnana, in fact, sorry, excuse me. Vajraraga Parijnana means, yeah, exactly that. Thorough, through the thorough knowledge of the diamond passion, the mind becomes uh, Vajrasapa, becomes a diamond being. So, um, could this be referring to, or one way of reading it is exactly that, that through. Um, the if, if if we let go of clinging, but then knowing that everything is empty, and allowing in our language eros and that erotic connection, um, which we also know is empty because we know that everything is empty, um, and because eros stimulates uh, soul making, which knows image as image, then um, what arises is this diamond being Vajrasapa is a Buddha who arises with his her mandala. So Buddhas in Tantric Buddhism and Bodhisattvas go with Buddha realms, Buddha fields. They go with worlds. They're not separate from the world, their mandala, what is around them, which is their perception, the world that they uh, perceive. So to become 
a Vajrasattva means to become a tantric practitioner, means to become a diamond being, an empty being who knows uh, an empty world that is divine, divine appearance, the mandala of the, of the world of divine appearances. So that this second um, sentence there can be, yes, there's, the first sentence reflects the dependent rising, dependent fading, which we know from uh, this my understanding of Theravada Buddhism, um, what the Buddha taught there, and uh, and Mahayana Buddhism, and in the second uh, couplet, the Vajrayana Tantric understanding of um, the, the a Buddha's uh, Tantric fabrication of um, of d- a divine and empty world. <coughs> we'll, we'll, let's pull a few more pieces out of this. So I, I recall that quote from uh, Jung in his um, autobiography. Um, Eros is a cosmogonos, he said. A cosmogonos in his fancy Greek word for it means a generator of cosmoses. Uh, uh, that which um, inseminates, uh, gives the seed for, for, for a cosmos. Eros is a cosmos, cosmogonos, he said, he wrote. So, in our language, we, we would better say that we would say in, in the language that we're using with the definitions that we're using, desire is a cosmogonos. In other words, desire, whether it's craving or whether it's eros, um, clinging, desire is a cosmogonos because of this understanding of dependent origination. Uh, <clears throat> with the movement of clinging, in the whole breadth of what that means, desire, it will give rise, it will fabricate cosmos cosmoses, depending on different aspects of what's involved <coughs> with that. Desire or clinging is cosmogonos. Craving, in, in this is our, our language, when it's craving, <coughs> there is um, one of the aspects of craving we, we um, delineated before and drew attention to. So craving is based on realism, on the assumption and the perception and the conceiving, even if it's unconscious, of the reality of the, uh, the, the self at any level, any level. So even a process view of the self or a self as just vast, insubstantial awareness, is still, it's still a realism there. There's still a, a level of self-view operating. Um, so Craving, in our language, uh, in, in our delineation, the way we're using language, craving is based on a realism of self and of world and of object. So that when there is realism, what we get, what what is um, generated in this cosmogonic process through, through desire, through clinging, um, when there's craving, when there's realism, we generate a real world. And all the kind of <coughs> rigidity of that, all the... Um, contractedness of that and all the kind of imprisonment that goes with realism and the perception and conception of realism and thus all the dukkha, etc. So that's one of the essential ingredients of what delineates craving from eros in our in our language. When the kind of desire in the cosmogonic uh, movement there is what we're calling eros, then what we get, as we've been outlining, is not the imprisonment of a realist uh, 
sense of, of, of the world, of self, other world. We get rather a, a non-realist self, other world, uh, and also eventually a, a sense of a divine and non-realist self, other world. This is the cosmos. And the cosmogonos there, when, it's, when the eros is the cosmogonos and not the craving, then the cosmos that we get is a divine and non-realist self, other world. So that going back to the Pali Canon and, and, and the Buddha um, uh, delineating Bhava Tanha um, as uh, what can be translated as craving for becoming or craving for being. That word Bhava, uh, I know some people try and make a distinction, but actually in Pali and Sanskrit can mean either becoming or being. There isn't really that distinction there. Being and becoming, and if you understand that time is empty, uh, same, same, being, becoming. So bhavatanha can be, uh, the Buddha delineated, can be ruparaga, meaning desire for the perception of form, um, or aruparaga, which, if you like, is uh, a more subtle bhavatanha, more subtle um, craving for being or becoming um, in the, what's called the immaterial realms or the experience of the formless jhanas. So this was a defilement in in the Pali Canon, and if you like, there's a, uh, as we said before, progressive sort of escaping from this, so that um, most human beings have desire for material forms and what the Buddha called the cords of sense pleasure and sense experience and all that. to be to have just a desire for uh, the rupa jhanas, uh, what the Buddha called fine material form, that the the realm, the level of fine material form, which if you know the jhanas, this really makes sense. The body is experienced as exactly that, um, much more refined uh, form, uh, energetic form, which we draw attention to with our talking about the energy body, etc. And so that's, if you like, an improvement, a move away from the gross entanglement uh, of of sense, pleasure, and materiality in what's called the material realm in the Pali Canon. Um, But even improvement over over an attraction to the fine material realm of the first four jhanas is an attraction solely to the arupa jhanas, the formless jhanas, the immaterial realms. And then eventually even that, uh, this is one of the last bastions of um, craving, of tanha for uh, a, what's called a non-returner in the Pali Canon, the third of the fourth levels of awakening. Um, and and with arahantship or full awakening, even that craving for being, becoming experience of the arupa jhanas, the formless or immaterial realms, even that is let go of. And there's this movement, as we said before, transcendent movement, gradual transcendent movement to the unfabricated, to that which is even beyond um, the formless realms in terms of its degree of unfabrication. So there's a sort of um, yeah, weaning off, that's a good way of putting it, a weaning off attachment to um, the uh, being attachment to being, let's say, uh, in in any sphere whatsoever. 
Uh, and so this uh, right there is uh, a shape given, an articulation giving to, given to what uh, mentioned Robert Bella called this movement of world rejection that's characteristic of <coughs> a lot of uh, religions of a certain period, and it certainly was there before the Buddha. So if you like, he in- inherited that. It wasn't the only teaching that was around uh, in his time. So he... You know, had his pick of what he could. Uh, just as in ancient Greece, there was a pick of um, kind of world-rejecting movements and uh, religions and philosophies, and those that denied any kind of world rejection and were flatly material, etc. So the Buddha chose that really, chose to incorporate that, to keep that, to sanction that in his initial presentation of the path there. And there's a movement through this progressive weaning, what's usually progressive. Sometimes you read a very sudden sudden uh, uh, ending of that t- Bawa Tanha, craving for being or becoming. Um, there's a progressive weaning uh, to the ending of rebirth, to the ending of being and becoming once and for all um, in, in any world of form or formless. And there's this transcendent thrust. But either with uh, a kind of tantric formulation or conceptual framework, or um, in the kind of parallels that we're talking about, the language of eros, psyche, logos, um, there are a lot of parallels between those two. Wouldn't, I wouldn't make them equivalent, um, and I'm not interested in doing that <coughs> for myself, but uh, there are parallels there. But could we then talk about, having said all that, a non-realist becoming? a non-realist bawa uh, being or becoming. So that, yes, the self is uh, fabricated and the world in a certain cosmopoesis, the imaginal self and the imaginal other, uh, there is the becoming of that, there is the being of that, but it's a non-realist bawa. So uh, uh, with the cosmopoesis there that goes with everything that we've been talking about and it's part of the tantric uh, mandala and the tantric view of divine appearances, etc. So that there's again a distinction between craving and eros, and there's a distinction between realist uh, bawa tanha and uh, what we might call non-realist uh, bawa or becoming and and world. So as I said, this vajrasattva, this diamond being, is. Um, uh, implied in that is this um, imaginal realm. He's a Buddha that's associated with the Sambhogakaya, with the imaginal uh, world opening up, um, the uh, seeing of all appearances as divine. And, the, and the, these tantric Buddhas, Vajrayana Buddhas and deities and Bodhisattvas, they're not separate from the mandala they appear in. Yes, non-dual, non-duality there, subject and object. Uh, and included in that, and absolutely as a premise, as I've mentioned before, of tantric practice, is that self, world, and other are are thoroughly known as empty. So tantric practice should be um, uh, take place or, or take its launch from that understanding and be imbued uh, all the time thoroughly with that understanding, the emptiness of self, the emptiness of the deity, and the emptiness of the perception of the world, of any world. <clears throat> and 
And what does this mean, diamond passion? Um, the, the word Vajra, diamond, again, it has multiple levels of meaning and facets of meaning, but one of its implications is, like a diamond, it's, it's supposedly indestructible. So indestructible passion. Uh, it also implies empty. Uh, uh, so when you say something is Vajra this or Vajra that, it, it, it implies already that it's empty uh, of inherent existence. And... Um, and implies, too, a kind of holiness, a sacredness there. Uh, indestructible passion, empty and holy, and, if you like, everlasting uh, passion. Uh, what is that? Um, to me, we could make a parallel there with what we're calling eros. And I've said um, many times now, can we notice in the imaginal practice, in the meditation, when there's eros around, and there, and there always is eros to some degree with imaginal practice, even if it's very subtle, um, can you notice or begin to notice the sacred and divine uh, nature of eros, meaning just the, the, the perception of sacredness and divinity, the aroma, the intimation, the feeling of sacredness and divinity, whatever that means uh, or however that is communicated in in the imaginal terrain and in the practice, however it's communicated to you, however you pick up on that, whatever the um, expression or manifestation there of sacredness and or divinity is, there's many many ways uh, that that can um, be presented to us, that we can get a sense of that, and uh, many I- infinite, I, w- I would say, in fact. Uh, and sometimes it comes um, in in a very clear way. It's actually personified, if you like, in the um, in the image itself. So um, maybe I'll share something. Um, there's a there's a sort of background to this image that I think I might have shared in in a previous retreat. I actually can't remember, but um, so it belongs to a series of images. And um, so moving kind of slowly o- over a period when I was on retreat and practicing with them and sort of pacing myself with them, and they, they, they sort of evolved. One thing led to another um, <clears throat> slowly over, over some days, uh, weeks even, I can't remember. Um, so one whole set of images, which I think I shared, but I could be not remembering correctly, um, involved a burnt man, uh, a man who's horribly burnt uh, and receives um, a healing bathing um, from a holy pool, from a kind of um, beautiful uh, goddess, um, uh, very pure, uh, bathing in pure waters and, and very loving, very healing, and he's horribly burnt um, and a sort of outcast because of that. And so he's uh, so burnt that he's incapable of tending to himself and bathing himself. So she bathes him with this beautiful pure water and there's a lot of grace there and mercy infusing um, her her healing, infusing her being. Uh, a lot of tenderness, a lot of compassion, a lot of grace with that. 
Uh, and uh, so some t- somehow, uh, at some point in this image, it's not just his face is kind of melted from the burns, but his arms are too, so that they're, they're kind of melted into his side so that he, he can't even raise them. And they're, sort of, they're always kind of pressed to his side, so his whole body is kind of fused, you know, like, if you like. It's one large surface of burn-scarred flesh. Um, and in that, in this sort of... If you can imagine that uh, a, a body looking like that was kind of smoothed out, if you like, with this uh, fusion of, uh, fused together with burned, scarred flesh, and um, the whole body, his whole body, began to look to, to me at some point like a lingam, like a like a huge phallus or those um, sort of uh, divine phallus uh, sculptures, etc., that you get in different um, cultures. Or just like a huge phallus, and uh, and then after a few days, um, a- a- another image sort of linked itself to that image of the the, the lingam that was kind of evolved from this uh, image before, um, or or kind of handed over to another image, if you like, almost, um, and uh, here there was. Um, a goddess that was connected with that first goddess, let's say, um, that was bathing the burnt man, and um, and this this goddess now is it the same? Is it different? Not sure. Um, she was passionately making love with, kind of erotically embracing and being penetrated by this lingam, uh, and and so the lingam, if you remember, it's actually slightly bigger than a tall and wide human body, so. Again, it doesn't kind of make sense anatomically, biologically, etc. But it, it's an image, so we have we have room for that. And she's kind of um, uh, rubbing her whole body ecstatically and passionately and lovingly against this lingam. And there's, uh, you know, it's very sexual, very erotic in that sense. And she she gives herself. There's this kind of total opening and abandon. She gives herself and her whole body to it. And you know, despite the the seeming sort of physical impossibility because of its you know relative size, she's penetrated by the lingam everywhere, every possible uh, entry point um, biologically, but even ones that don't make sense biologically. Uh, and this is more sort of intuitive sense in the image rather than the visual sense. So penetrated through her eyes. What does that mean? I don't know. It's a it's a poetic sense, through her senses, through her whole body, everywhere at once. And she is on fire with desire. Um, Not literally fire, but her desire is is wild, it's fluid, it's fiery, it's full and it's full-bodied. It's also insatiable. There's something I recognize in the image as I'm working with it about, about her and about her desire. And, and there's this quality of insatiability to her eros. Or, or should I say, uh, because it's not like the... Um, uh, uh, it's not that she's unfulfilled or pained uh, by the dukkha of desire, by this insatiability, but it's just that her eros is inexhaustible. Um, and there's no problem with that inexhaustibility. It's part of the uh, divinity. It's holy. And, and part of its holiness is its inexhaustibility. 
And she is devoted to this lingam. To, she's devoted also to the erotic meeting, to the surrender, to the passion, to the eros itself. And so in this image, in, in this imaginal practice, you know, I, I sometimes feel as if, we've talked about this before, about how the kind of identification can be mobile in, in the imaginal practice. So at times I feel very vividly as if I am that lingam feel the goddess kind of rub herself against me, open to me, etc. At other times I become the goddess and feel it all as if from within her body. And at other times I seem to kind of feel both both together. A lot of love here uh, is, is uh, a lot of love and beauty in the wild passion. And, and I too am sort of filled with some kind of sense of worshipping there and worshipping this that I was witnessing and kind of participating in. And I'll say one more thing about that, about the image, because I also felt, um, again, very strong, very, there's some kind of, something goes deep um, and firm in some kind of, uh, I want to use the words, nuptial commitment, like emerging through and in this particular erotic image that, you know, I could have just regarded, this is really weird, you know, this is really out there. Um, but it's just, and partly why I'm sharing it, all, all these kind of images, I've said this before, it's worth saying again, is it's just because, you know, for a lot of people hearing this, um, some people just say, well, that's just weird, I can't relate to that. But other people will be hearing, and um, I want to cast a different light on um, uh, images that may arise for people that initially they're fearful of or they think they're weird or they think it's pathological or unhealthy or this or that and actually say maybe there's something holy here if I can just let go of that stranglehold contraction of my initial um, mind programming to regard it as abhorrent or too weird or what will it mean about me or I'll become kind of deranged or, you know, uncontrollable, you know, monster or something like that. I'm partly sharing that, uh, all this, um, at the risk, of course, of people thinking I'm weird or whatever like that. I know that I'm not because people talk to me as well and they share. And I just want to really open that up and kind of normalize something and open the range of what what practice is and um, prevent a kind of pain that happens when people just start fearing their own mind and the images that arise and assuming something pathological just because of what the culture or certain subcultures, religious or secular, have, have indoctrinated them with. Um, so there, there <clears throat> going back to the image, there, there is this deep... Uh, feeling, strong feeling of some, something going deep in me and, and very firm, like a kind of devotion, but a kind of commitment, a nuptial commitment, like I'm somehow through this, this particular image, this, I can't even say to what exactly, but I feel like I'm binding myself in like a, like a wedding ceremony somehow. Um, it involves me, I'm drawn into, and I somehow assent to some kind of commitment and I'm not even sure exactly what it's not that it could be anything um, but uh, and whatever it is is something 
you know, that I'm not, I haven't been committed to fully before. So it's something new. In some ways, it seems in this image to be a commitment to the earth, to nature, and to protecting her. Um, uh, and uh, I think I shared this before. In fact, at some points in the image, it sort of goes off into into other images, the imaginal figures that I've had from the past, from this wrathful deity nature protector, I think I shared that one. Um, but there's also a commitment here in this image to this goddess. I'm somehow committed to this goddess. Um, and also in that, or with that, I'm committed to that, this erotic embrace and this penetration, that lovemaking, whatever that means, uh, or all the levels of that. Um, and, and then later, this is quite relatively early in, in this sort of practice for me, I had the intuitive sense that the very meaning of this image and, and of the commitment, it, 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 it can grow and it will indeed keep growing and expanding because of Eros's tendency to extension and expansion. And again, and just to mention, you know, at times the whole... Um, uh, that whole image has started to include the imaginal perception of the world and the bird song as sacred text and uh, other kind of cosmopoesis, particular kind of cosmopoesis spilled out of that. Um, but he, there was an example of uh, the, well, there's a lot in there I, I shared for, for different reasons, um, but two main ones. There was the, the, the clear sense personified in the very image of the inexhaustibility of Eros, and that inexhaustibility being one of the aspects of the holiness of Eros. So there's a sense of the holiness and the devotion and all that. Uh, unlike the, uh, of the Eros, and then a particular dimension, if you like, or aspect of that holiness was the very inexhaustibility, this infinitude uh, that we've been referring to that has to do with divinity. Divinity and infinitude um, go together in all kinds of ways, perhaps in infinite ways. Um, very different from what the Buddha called the, uh, or this word tanha actually means thirst, and it has the implication of an unquenchable thirst. So this is uh, this inexhaustibility of eros has a holiness to it, unlike the unquenchable thirst of tanha. Are they? Can they be mistaken for each other? Do they somehow overlap? Can one transform into another? Yes, we've been through all this before. So that's one element of why I shared that image, and also again this sense that um, there's. Uh, devotion, divinity, and duty within an erotic image. Um, and uh, this is, again, uh, you know, maybe that's um, an element uh, pregnant uh, within, within the um, meaning of diamond passion, to go back to that tantric uh, word, the Vajraraga. Uh, diamond passion and... Um, the duty and the divinity that come out of that, knowing, but by, by the thorough knowing of the diamond passion, one becomes a, a diamond being, Vajrasattva. Empty, divine, and with this the purpose of the Bodhisattva there. So, as I said, um, a Buddha. In, 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 in 
Vajrayanam and Mahayana teachings always comes with his Buddha field, his Buddha realm, his uh, Buddha Bodhisattva comes with that, comes with the mandala, with the world of, of divine appearances, with the divine world. Um, and we can see tying that into what we, we've been saying about eros and soul making and cosmopoesis, that um, that's exactly what we expect. When there's the diamond passion, when there's the eros, and we thoroughly know that, and know the image is image, self and world are divinized in in our perception. So, as we've been saying, eros starts to involve, it implicates all the other elements and facets of our experience, of, 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 of our world, of our self, other world, etc., and dra- draws that in. So, through the diamond passion, one becomes a, a, a diamond being in, in, in a world of divine appearances. And in, <clears throat> in what we've been saying so far as so far as eros will bring, when it is um, unfettered, so to speak, when it's not blocked, when eros psychologos are not blocked, when it when it is allowed to expand, fertilize, etc., um, when they are allowed to expand, fertilize each other, eros psychologos, there will be, eros will bring, will give rise to, will stimulate uh, a widening, deepening, um, uh, multiplying. Uh, a manifold sense of divinity. The senses of divinity will widen. Our sense of divinity will widen, deepen, and grow more manifold. Yes? So we could start with um, any erotic object, or eventually any object can become erotic for us. So we may start with a human other. Uh, We may start with a purely imaginal being that's the uh, beloved other, the erotic object. We may start with eros towards the transcendent, unfabricated, uh, the deathless nirvana, the ayin of the Kabbalah, the nothing, the transcendent nothingness of the Godhead. Um, We may start with the world, either the world of uh, conceived as matter, Matter is what we love. Um, matter is what we feel this erotic connection with, or the world conceived of as appearances, or just one thing, this tree, that forest, whatever it is. Um, uh, and also the erotic objects uh, can be mixtures of all these. And uh, in fact, so again, there's this manifold possibility of where um, eros can go, and therefore, and then what it can make divine, uh, and even in mixtures, you, you, you will get. Uh, so ero- the erotic object can be a mixture of these kind of uh, elements, and and it will, in fact, uh, because of the eros-psychologus dynamic and because of cosmopoesis, there will be, I would say. Uh, a natural tendency, a natural movement to the mixing of these um, facets, so that each object becomes multifaceted, and its, and its very divinity is multifaceted. So the soul-making dynamic, the eurosychologos, um, expansion, insemination, movement, widening, deepening, um, in relation to a human other, for instance, we begin to perceive them, sense the divinity of them, in them, through them, etc., in their humanity. Um, and then that spills over into cosmopoesis, to the world, uh, we've been through this, or we start with a desire, the eros for the transcendent uh, god, for the unfabricated, the hidden god, the apophatic uh, movement. Uh, and at some point, perhaps 
um, after the realization of the unfabricated experiences of cessation and that sort of thing, um, but perhaps before, uh, there's a sense of that uh, divinity, the sense of divinity widens, it deepens, and it particularizes. So it's not just um, in this uh, oneness that pervades in different ways. Um, we can know, and we move towards knowing and wanting to know the um, divinity or God, if you're okay with that language, or the ultimate as transcendent and imminent, as universal and as personal, as circumscribed in itself, so to speak, separate, if you like, from creation and without any circumscribing, without limit, without borders, infinite and in everything or everything in the divine or God or whatever, um, uh, in everything in the same way and in each thing in a way unique and particular to that thing. So all these directions and when all these mixings and multifacetedness and multidimensionality of the sense of divinity, but eros um, will naturally tend to widen, deepen, multiply uh, the senses that we have of, of divinity, uh, that we can feel, perceive, know, etc., making manifold, uh, more manifold, ever more manifold of our sense senses of divinity. And how to navigate all this? <coughs> um, you know, if that sounds all... Uh, but, but, but I just call on what we've actually um, already, already touched on. So again, just weaving things together here, going over what we've already uh, gone with new stitching, perhaps new colors, etc., making new connections. Um, there can be eros towards the unfabricated, eros that longs for the transcendent other, um, eros to, longs to, towards um, different levels of oneness that perhaps we don't know yet, etc., or we're only getting to know. Um, and um, th that eros needs a skillful um, uh, development of the art and an understanding of working with clinging, letting go of clinging, as we've talked about what we're calling clinging, that whole spectrum, and, um, move, and learning to move uh, or to be moved along down on the spectrum of decreasing fabrication. And that's a skill and an art that we can develop, an absolutely beautiful and uh, precious thing that is to develop uh, all that range. <clears throat> so there's that kind of eros towards the unfabricated to, to different kinds of oneness, etc. And then there's eros to, if you like, um, directed towards the world, towards the senses, towards selves and others, uh, and, 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 and the world of sense experience and things. Um, and this kind of eros for the particulars and the uh, the, the, the not wanting to transcend. Um, this will, it, it, in, in just saying what we've already said in other language, it, it will re-enchant the world and the senses, self and other and the cosmopoesis and all that. There is a divinization, if that's the right word, of, word of the world and of the senses. So, uh, a while ago, um, one of the talks... Uh, so we can reconfigure some 
of the original teachings can add a whole other level here um, that might kind of echo, if you like, uh, or, or sound almost like tantric language. Um, but now we can say something like uh, what I said before, knowing the emptiness and eternality of the imaginal, or knowing the emptiness and the timelessness of the imaginal, the world is re-enchanted. With the world re-enchanted, or inner world re-enchanted and empty, one is free to become impassioned. Eros is free to, to flow, to ignite. Impassioned, infinite things open infinitely. So knowing the emptiness and eternality of the imaginal, the world is re-enchanted. In a world re-enchanted and empty, one is free to become impassioned. Impassioned, infinite things open infinitely. So it's really saying something about the, uh, the how... Eros is woven into the imaginal and soul-making, how that re-enchants and divinizes the world. Uh, knowing, seeing, sensing the emptiness and the eternality that allows more Eros and, and thing, everything, infinite things, uh, even more things than we even uh, realized were there. More aspects are revealed to us and they open infinitely, they gain dimensions and dimensionality. And as we said before, this that uh, sort of um, quasi-tantric aphorism, or if you like, you can turn it around because of there's always going to be mutual dependent arising between between such elements. So the eros is what re-enchants and what um, reveals to us the uh, timeless level of the imaginal, that sense of the timelessness. Um, but in fact, they're all mutually dependent. So, uh, eros re-enchants, the opening up of things give rise, gives rise to eros, to more eros, because there's more that's attractive there, there's that beyond, sense of the beyond, and that stimulates um, uh, more re-enchantment, etc. Yeah, so all those elements mutually dependently arising. And in terms of navigation, what's this asking for? It's just asking... I'm just drawing out one element of our conceptual framework again, as it's so worth getting clear about. It's asking for us to understand um, this whole idea of, if you like, uh, the choices we have in regard to fabrication and degrees of fabrication. To understand that and to make choices about navigating and to develop the arts of unfabricating, if you like, to different degrees and expand our range with that and develop our um, capability with that uh, through the understanding of dependent origination, the skill in practice and the art of practice there with emptiness, etc. That's one direction. Another direction you could say is actually what we might call skillful or um, tantric fabrication or soul-making fabrication. And, uh, and and actually recognize this is fabrication, of course it is, um, but it's serving the purpose of soul-making, and it's non-realist. Um, so there's those two, the sort of decrease of the fabrication, the, the attenuating of the fabrication, and, and the deliberate fabrication for the purpose of um, soul-making. Uh, and then kind of one point of that spectrum, if you like, is what we might call, what most people would call mindfulness or maybe even bare attention, um, where there's a sort of very, just very slightly uh, reduced level of fabrication. 
compared to, say, a normal consciousness. Um, reduced from, say, more papancha, um, but a little bit less than normal consciousness. Um, well, depending on the uh, intensity of the mindfulness, all kinds of things, but um, and what, what else is included with the mindfulness. But but that, if we, if we just delineate it as a sort of, it's just a point on that spectrum of, of, um, of fabrication and it's um, and how we're going to orient to that in practice. And it's very useful at times. You go into a mode of bare attention, go into a mode of simple mindfulness. It has its place for certain things, for certain disentanglements, etc. Um, but the whole path, in, 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 as I would, we're trying to present it, you know, encompasses much more. And really that's just a incredibly small sliver that has a certain limited usage and a certain limited possibility for soul making a certain limited possibility for deepening insight etc um, but it's it's there and it's useful to shrink the path to that in, in my mind would be an enormous shame because you would be cutting off um, so much possibility Okay, so this is important, that understanding and the just sort of d- developing uh, one's arts of movement in those different directions, um, those different sort of places on the spectrum of fabrication uh, is, is, is important for, the nav- for our navigation in, in the wider sense, in, in the wider picture of what, fa- uh, what practice is. So, um, as we said before, and as you can already hear um, from, from, from this, is that all this implicates and involves um, the senses and sense experience and sense pleasure and our relationship to all that. Um, so let me read you something from Nietzsche again, um, just a little passage. And uh, he says, he writes, In the main... I agree more with the artists than with any philosopher hitherto. They, the artists, have not lost the scent of life. They have loved the things of this world. They have loved their senses. To strive for, quote, desensualization, that seems to me a misunderstanding or an illness. I desire for myself and for all who live, who may live, uh, without being tormented by a puritanical conscience, an ever greater spiritualization and multiplication of the senses. Without being tormented by a puritanical consciousness, an ever greater spiritualization and multiplication of the senses. Indeed, he continues, we should be grateful to the senses for their subtlety, plenitude and power and offer them in return the best we have in the way of spirit. We translate this into what we've been talking about. What are priestly and metaphysical calumnies against the senses to us? We no longer need these calumnies, these um, threats and teachings. It is a sign that one has turned out well when one clings with ever greater pleasure and warmth to the, quote, things of this world. For in this way, he holds one, holds firmly to the great conception of man, let's say human beings, um, that a human being becomes the transfigurer of existence when she learns to transfigure herself. The 
great conception of the human being, that human being becomes the transfigurer of existence when she learns to transfigure herself. Um, so can you hear uh, in what he's saying what could be very much construed as is exactly what we've been talking about and if we substitute for the word transfigure of exist, transfigurer of existence um, transubstantiation, alchemy things we've talked about in the last retreat we, through uh, relating, through an erotic connection with the senses and letting that eurocyclogos dynamic do its natural thing that it wants to do, there's a, a transfiguration of existence in Nietzsche's terms. There's a transubstantiation of self, other, world. There's an alchemy that happens in the perception. Yeah? So again, the... the, the uh, there's a comparison again between um, uh, tantra, again tantric practice and emptiness practice. That um, the tantric practice of, of of seeing appearances as divine means sense experience as as sense experiences as divine. What we um, what reaches us, what we perceive, what we open to, what we fabricate through the senses, in the senses, um, to see that as divine and empty. So, um, when there is um, a fading through insight, and just, for instance, um, really getting into the practice of regarding things as not-self, or, or things as empty, there's a if you like, there's an attenuation of avijja at that point. So ignorance, avijja, usually regards things as self and usually regards things as having inherent existence. And when I engage a way of looking that regards things, uh, for instance, as not self and as empty, uh, the world of appearance, the things, self, others, and the whole world of appearance will, will fade to some extent. But I can, for instance, one can in practice, with, with, with the development of practice, learn to sort of engage that, incorporate that knowing of emptiness, so that things fade a little bit, um, but they're kind of loosened up, and, and they lose some of their substantiality, typically. Um, uh, but you're not leaning all the way on that insight into emptiness. So you're kind of modulating it, like, like, like the gas and the uh, clutch pedal on a car. You're just modulating. Uh, so you're retaining um, perception and imaginal perception of divine appearances. And you can, either they naturally appear as divine or you can just choose to appear to uh, perceive them in different ways as divine. You're lightly knowing the emptiness. You're keeping that there in the perception. So there's a degree of unfabricating. Um, but you're not letting them fade completely. You're not... Um, saying that fading is the better thing. You're not turning away, if you like, from the senses or denigrating uh, the world of form, of perception, of experience. You're playing at that midpoint, mimicking the Buddha's perception, as we, uh, a Buddha's perception who is able to know emptiness completely and still perceive a world of appearances, of divine appearances. Um, transubstantiating the uh, world of transubstantiating the world, transubstantiating the self, and the um, and, and 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 the sense experience, yeah. And there's um, 
that's captured in uh, Vajrayana iconography in the yabhyam, the erotic uh, coupling or union of the Buddha and his consort, Buddhas and their consorts. Um, The, we talked about this before. I think it's so. I think it's so beautiful and so profound. I'm going to actually repeat it now. Um, the prajna being the female, uh, usually characterized by the female, and the upaya. Prajna means wisdom, and upaya the skillful means. Um, so at one level, the compassion. At another level of meaning, the mandala of appearances, of divine appearances. So the wisdom, n- knowing aspect, the wisdom that knows emptiness and the and the awareness that perceives, and the um, mandala of divine appearances are represented as in erotic sexual union, penetrating um, the, uh, the 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 co mingling, if you like, of the two, represented iconographically with with the sexual union there. Um, In other words, the wisdom consciousness, if you like, the prajna, is uh, the the wisdom knowing. And remember, let's keep that knowing plural. Remember, if I really have wisdom, what I have is multiple ways of looking. And, and infinitely expandable ways of looking. That's what I end up with if I, if, if I really understand emptiness, if my prajna is really developed. That there is not, therefore, the epistemicide, the shrinking down. So mindfulness reveals things as the way they are, or classical Newtonian science reveals things as the way they are, or whatever it is. There is uh, not that epistemicide, what we're calling the epistemic cleansing, the, these kind of words. Um, there is uh, this opening because incorporated within that wisdom knowing is a whole range of ways of knowing yes I heard also in the fabulous uh, uh, phrase epistemic disobedience just just refusing to go along with this uh, cultural indoctrination in the west of what qualifies as a way of knowing reality this is knowledge, that's reality, there's only one way of getting them, or if it's a, a dharma shrinking of that into mindfulness or whatever. It's when uh, someone say, do you want your uh, reality with or without additives? And the teaching there is, is supposedly that if you want the pure, real reality, with quote, without additives, that's what gi- is given to you by mindfulness. And, and, uh, and apparently meta as well. Is that it, is that really a, a full enough, deep enough, radical understanding? Is there not uh, a misunderstanding wrapped up in that? But anyway, back to this uh, tantric iconography. There's an erotic sexual union interpenetration between the wisdom knowings. Put it that way: the the knowings that are uh, that know emptiness and thus have um, this the, a range of, of ways of knowing. No, that there's nothing but that really. And even they are not real. The wisdom, the erotic union between the wisdom knowing and and the world, the world of form of matter of senses, which is recognized to be empty and divine. And and as I said before, in the Buddhist iconography, this Buddha and his consort Bodhisattva and their consort are not actually separate. They they together make the Buddha. They make the Buddha, male, female, 
neither, both, whatever. Not separate there. There's not the separation of the... Um, uh, the, the 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 wisdom consciousness the wisdom knowing <clears throat> and the and the world the senses the world of form of matter of the senses all of it empty all of it divine and uh, and and within that actually uh, there is uh, and, and if you know the teachings a little bit there's room for the transcendent aspect of the Gnosis, the transcendent aspect of the Buddha's mind, beyond appearance, beyond any form, beyond anything that can be said of it, or predicated, or attributed to it, the unfabricated, and at the same time, there's room for the imminence, and, and, the, and the revelation, the discovery of, of the divine in and through, in different ways, the world of forms and experience. And uh, and you see this also again. Mirage is making parallels here in Kabbalistic teaching and the Jewish mystical teachings. There's the eros between um, aspects or faces of the divine, aspects or faces of the Godhead. They're called sefirot. Um, so, for example, some of you may know some some of these teachings. But um, for example, between the sefirot of uh, Tiferet and Malchut, which is also the Shekhinah that you've maybe heard of. Um, in other words, between the divine transcendence there and the divine uh, presence in the world, the imminence, the Shekhinah, there is an erotic connection. There is an erotic love, an erotic union. Yes, so right there, spelled out in all these mystical teachings, in, in, in very erotic language and depictions, is, is saying, between... Um, uh, the transcendent and the imminent, there is eros. Between uh, the, the wisdom knowing and the world of form, matter, senses, there is, uh, look, sexual union. There is this erotic connection. Or to take another um, teaching from the Kabbalistic tradition, again from the Sefirot, the two Sefirot, Hochma, which translates as wisdom or something like that, and is associated with a kind of uh, level or dimension of being or a world of pure conception. And if we go back to the teachings about dependent origination and fabrication, if you like, the, the simplest conception is just any kind of self, any kind of knower uh, uh, and any kind of known, which a knower always needs a known, uh, and any kind of time, like just the present moment, just knowing a known and time as the barest pure conception. You could say that's the seed in Chochmah. Uh, and that seed fertilizes Bina, another sphere, the third sphere called uh, Mother, the Celestial Mother. And she, that sphere, is, has a kind of parallel, <coughs> or is associated with a dimension of being, a level, a world of uh, what's called knowing. Uh, it's the uh, don't take this temporarily, but it's the initial, uh, the first forming, if you like, of objects, of um, perception or beings, dis the first uh, appearance of distinct, finite creatures, the realm of angelic or, quote, spiritual beings, the mundus imaginalis, maybe there are parallels there. But again, there's this erotic union uh, um, uh, depicted between the uh, 
the, the transcendent pure conception, if you like, and the the world of appearances, the mundus imaginaris, the, the mundus imaginaris, the world of forms, etc. Again, eros and the imaginal are wrapped up together there, and and you can uh, also see some parallels here with teachings about dependent origination. Any fabrication needing, as I said before, some elemental, incredibly subtle conception there, the pure conception, perhaps, of Chochmah, and how that gives rise, then, to the world, not necessarily in a temporally discrete um, progression there. What's interesting in the Kabbalah about this uh, last erotic um, union uh, is that um, human practice is necessary to restore these two sefirot, Chochmah and Bina, the uh, wisdom and the, um, the, the mother of, of the world, if you like, these two, Chochmah and Bina, uh, to restore them, to restore their erotic union, to restore their uh, lovemaking, their, to turn them back face to face after uh, a mythic rupture within the divine itself. Um, what's necessary is human practice for what's called the tikkun olam, the restoration, the healing of the world, um, is also the healing of the divine. So through human practice, these two, if you like, faces of the divine come back into the erotic uh, embrace of lovemaking, of sexual union, uh, in, for which they were originally intended. The wisdom and and uh, the wisdom, that, if you like, the father that's that's pure conceptuality that generates fabrication and the world that is fabricated there, the world of forms. And so you get in this teaching, uh, hum, the teaching that human practice is necessary somehow to um, divine and cosmic healing and completion. Human practice is necessary. And then wrapped up in this teaching as well is also the fact that uh, this breaking of the vessels is part of this whole kind of, if you call it mythology, a psychology, a metaphysic, a multi-leveled, multifaceted teaching. This breaking of the vessels that I've referred to repeatedly, Shavirata Kelim, if that happens repeatedly on different levels of being and in our own uh, psyche and souls and all. If that happens repeatedly, every time that happens, the Chochmah um, and the Bina, the celestial father, if you like, the celestial mother, um, the wisdom and the um, the appearance of forms, if you like, are turned out, uh, uh, turn their faces from each other, uh, looking in opposite directions, away from their erotic union. And so every time that happens, um, because it happens repeatedly, this uh, breaking of the vessels, that rupture in the the erotic union happens, and it's up to us, it's up to the human being to restore that that lovemaking between these um, aspects, directions, Faces of God, faces of our being. It, it, interesting to me, interesting. I don't know if you can 
hear the, the poetry in here and hear how many resonances there are uh, in terms of ideas um, that, that, can, that can fertilize soul-making further. In tantric practice, as I mentioned before, there's a, a, a kind of, what well, I can only, only really view as a mimicking of a Buddha's uh, gnosis that can see emptiness uh, and has some aspect that's completely transcendent and cos- uh, transcendent uh, at the same time as as imminent an, an appearance uh, as uh, go slower sorry um, to, the, mimicking a Buddha who is the, a Buddha is the only kind of being that can um, know fully the emptiness with the wisdom there and uh, and perceive appearances and forms, etc. And so tantric practice is a kind of skillful, artful mimicking of that Buddha Gnosis. And within that, there's um, this understanding that it's referring to, the Buddha Gnosis is referring to something, uh, a cosmic dimension, this jhana, this Gnosis, is something cosmic and divine. And at the same time, it's not other than our very minds. Our very minds, uh, at one level, are are the Buddha nature, are the Buddha mind, are the Buddha gnosis already, and is not separate from, uh, not other than our minds and this world. That mandala, the divine appearances, is this world perceived differently, perceived through the lenses of gnosis, perceived through the lenses of imaginal perception when the eros um, has, is, is allowed to fertilize it, perceived through, if you like, um, deity practice in, in tantric tradition. So because it's not other than our minds, and because it's this world that is being created and discovered um, as divine and revealed that way, there is this um, aspect to all these teachings of participation. And so in the Kabbalah, the human human practice is necessary for this healing of the divine and 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 restoration of the erotic union within between the face of the divine and and that's part of the healing of the cosmos as well there's participation um, is is woven in to these teachings that idea of participation that I've that I've touched on before and drawn attention to is woven into these kind of teachings some years ago I'm sure I would have heard all this and it just these kinds of things, it just sounds like completely abstract metaphysics or some ridiculous kind of mythology. Now, it seems it's so um, resonant, so uh, alive and multifaceted, these kinds of ideas. Um, anything but abstract, anything but kind of um, abstruse or kind of slightly strange, disembodied um, metaphysics from another era. What is it, as I hope I've said before on this retreat, to take ideas and let them be seminal, let them um, be seeds in the psyche, but through entertaining them, they, they can we translate them into ways of looking and, and into imaginal perception? So an idea actually seeds the imaginal and, and fertilizes the eros, and the idea and the image start mixing and giving birth to other images or other dimensions of image. So not abstract metaphysics, all this 
Vajrayana stuff and the Kabbalah stuff and whatever and Neoplatonic stuff to be practiced. They refer to practices, to things um, and uh, experiences that we can um, uh, can actually o- open to in practice, in our lives, and refer to ways of living and ways of seeing, ways of looking, viewing. Yes. <clears throat> in. Uh, in another strand or related strand of Jewish mysticism um, that, that sort of emerged in <coughs> actually in Eastern Europe um, in the 18th century, really, um, uh, talked about a double movement, a double movement, and so there's the movement to um, what they called nullify the self and nullify matter and form in favor of the Godhead. Um, in other words, to realize um, the emptiness of self, the emptiness of matter and form, and to become, if you like, nothing, and to dissolve um, into the into the uh, unfabricated, we could say in our language, um, into the ayin in, in the in the Hebrew in the in the Kabbalistic tradition, that the nothing of God, and the pregnant nothing of God, the infinite nothing of God. So this one movement is the nullification of self and matter form in favor, and matter or form in favor of the Godhead. And the second movement of the double movement is to bring about an infusion of the divine, of the divinity, into the material world through religious worship and ritual and ethical action, what's called the mitzvot in, in the tradition. So there's a double movement there, what's called the upper unification, this uh, annihilation in their language of of the self and of the world, and this emptying, if you like, uh, dissolving into the transcendent, infinite, unfabricated God. Uh, And paradoxically, that upper unification, the ability to do that, um, enables a drawing down, or I would like to say, to the degree that we're able to do that, we are more able to... um, draw down, uh, in their language, the divine essence into the vessels of the finite world. And this drawing down, an ability to draw down, is called the lower unification. And that kind of teaching is wrapped up with, with in all kinds of language that, um, for a lot of us n- now, uh, it would be really quite loaded um, and, and charged and sometimes for some people, scary, and uh, etc. Um, and there's also elements of that language that I would like to really um, uh, not actually incorporate just because it makes either too much of a duality or, or this or that. So, for example, they talk about leaving the bodily sheath um, and divine will and divine commandments, etc. So just leaving aside all that kind of language and taking something central from that because of its parallels to what we're talking about. So you can see there, for instance, the parallel, or that you can see that double movement in the uh, in what we're describing as tantric um, practice. So that typical tantric practice with a yidam, with a tantric deity, um, there's first the dissolution into emptiness, the knowing of emptiness, and then the emergence from the emptiness and the um, imagining, if you like, of the deity and even the becoming of the deity, and then at the end dissolving it all back into emptiness. Thoroughly, um, so there's the 
drawing down or even becoming uh, a vessel of the imp- of the uh, divine in the this drawing down of the divine essence, um, but that's enabled and shot through with the knowing of emptiness. Yes, uh, enabled by or shot through by the of, of the knowing of the emptiness and the fading of things it is also parallel with with imaginal practice, just as we've been talking about working with an imaginal figure, working with a, 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 a daemon, if you like, uh, and feeling a sense of the duty to that, um, and, and the way that the sense of the divinity and the dimensionality of divinity of that figure, of that daemon, of that imaginal figure, and then the sense of duty. Can you see that too? I know it's image is image, it's empty, and... Uh, and that kind of enables me to listen, uh, let's say, feel, sense uh, uh, this sense of divinity and duty. It's all it's all wrapped up together. And and then the question is, how does that duty embody? Um, is it just in a sort of inner uh, de- devotedness, or is it somehow spilling over into the world? Careful of this literalization, concretization. But you can see the parallels there. <clears throat> and in alchemy, I can't remember if I've used this phrase before on, on another retreat, but al- there's an alchemical phrase uh, sort of um, summing up of the goal of alchemy as the spiritualization of matter and the materialization of spirit. The spiritualization of matter and the materialization of spirit. And so again, you, you can see uh, here echoes uh, of, of these different streams of tradition kind of reflecting each other. Different traditions and the way they express things kind of paralleling or uh, mirroring each other or kind of groping towards the same thing. Spiritualization of matter, this nullification of self and matter, um, recognizing it as empty and, and, and as divine that way, and then the materialization of spirit, meaning that something like the drawing down of this uh, divine essence into the vessels of the fi- finite world, the divine influx. Yeah. And in that, um, actually in both the Kabbalistic Jewish mystical teachings and in the Tantric teachings, in the Vajrayana teachings, there's a kind of double perspective, if you like, going on. It's made very clear in the Kabbalistic teachings. And this double perspective, it's almost like holding two perspectives, so not just a double movement, but a double perspective um, held as well. And this double perspective, to me, ensures a thorough non-dualism of the teachings. So even sometimes we're used to Advaita teachings, teachings of non-duality, etc. And um, unwittingly, they can actually create another kind of duality in teaching that um, there's nothing to do, there's nowhere to get, meditation's pointless, etc. You don't need to do anything. They kind of don't say much about ethics and, and all that. And there's a there's a kind of almost like um, uh, denigrating of effort, of striving, and, and that, that kind of movement there, um, and uh, avoidance, or rather missing of the divinity and the particularity, etc., we've touched on. But with this double perspective, to me there's a more thorough non-duality. So one of the perspectives is we already recognize that everything, all, is 
already divine. It's already all one. It's already all perfect. Um, the essence of everything is divine. And the illusion of separate things that are not divine or separated from the divine uh, is exactly that. It's an illusion. Because essentially all is one and already divine. One is one perspective. And uh, the kind of uh, the complementary perspective that we um, express, or better, we create and we manifest the divine. That we are therefore necessary to the divine. And this implies to me a whole other level of participation, that we are participating in the divine. We create, we manifest uh, the divine. We are necessary to the divine. But holding those two perspectives, all already perfect, there's nothing to do, um, any illusion uh, of separate, non-divine things doesn't recognize the essence, uh, the shared essence, the oneness of an already perfect divinity, that everything is already just divine. Uh, and at the same time, the complementary perspective that no, we need to create, manifest um, the divine, and we are necessary to the life of the divinity, if you like, to the soul and the soul making of the divine. But both the tantra, uh, tantric kind of uh, framework and the kabbalistic framework and these kind of teachings. They're related to practice. They absolutely imply and demand practice. They're not, as I said, abstract metaphysical teachings that have nothing to do with our life. <coughs> so, um, I want to continue. Let's stop here for now. I just want to continue then talking a bit more about historical processes with different traditions, but also how that has affected sexuality in particular, and maybe some other elements. So, but let's stop there for now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.